Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, this is Mark Trichel, and I'm here with another episode of With Flying Colors. And today I'm excited to be joined by Dan Prezioso, a partner at Olden Lane. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing well, Mark. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, happy to contribute to it. Uh, it's a great resource for learning about credit unions and what's going on in the industry. And I, I'm consulting it regularly at this point. So I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you being uh, willing to chat with my listeners about, you know, what Olden Lane is doing these days. And, you know, I went to Old Lane's website to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And my understanding of what you offer, my interactions with Old and Lane have mostly been on secondary capital and old habits die hard. I have a hard time stopping calling it secondary capital. Of course, now it's subordinated debt with the changes of the NCUA regulation that you help credit unions quite a bit in that, uh, you know, I believe you're the market leader as far as issuing of either secondary capital or sub-debt in credit unions. And I thought it'd be great to just kind of talk about what you see happening yesterday, today, and maybe tomorrow as it relates to subordinated debt in credit unions. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very dynamic and emerging market at this point in time. Just to give you an idea of the type of growth that we've experienced over the last four or five years, at the end of 2017, total outstanding subordinated debt issued by credit unions was a little over $220 million. And as of the end of the first quarter, um, it was over $1.1 billion. We've seen over $900 million of net new issuance over that period. But interesting, you know, the number of credit unions that are currently in the market versus back then is about the same, about 85, 86 issuers. So what's really driven that growth is the type of credit union that's now accessing the market. And what we're seeing is much larger credit unions participating. The average participant now is close to a billion dollars in assets, whereas back in 2017, it was more like 300 million. The average amount of issuance has increased four or five fold. And that's what's really driven the growth over the period. But uh, it's been very dynamic. And if you look at the growth rate, and I give you a chart that you can post for your listeners, but it's been vertical over the last several quarters. It's an exciting time to be a part of of the market. It's an emerging asset class. We're seeing different types of investors participate, and we're seeing more and more issuance from some really top performing credit unions. So it's fun. It's fun work to be doing. You know, We started back at the beginning <laughs> in 2017 when it was more missionary work, when it was a concept that was rather new. Historically, sub-debt was something that was kind of regarded as maybe a Band-Aid or a lifeline that credit unions that were struggling might turn to. And what's changed over this period is that it's now recognized as a tool for growth for well-performing, thriving credit unions to use to continue to grow, to potentially grow for a short period of time at a rate that's a little faster than their ability to retain earnings. We've seen sort of that growth in the recent period due to conditions 
that uh, inflated uh, savings rates. And so a lot of credit unions have found it as a good tool to navigate recent conditions as well. And so those numbers you quoted, is that the East, the Treasury ESIP program, is that inclusive or exclusive of, of those? That's exclusive. That's and th- okay. Thanks for bringing that up because I often refer to the market exclusive of ESIP. And fortunately, to keep it a little less confusing, the ESIP dollars haven't landed, uh, have just landed as of the last month or so. That's right. And so they're not in the figures that I'm quoting, but they will be on the next call report. We should probably pause and just explain what ESIP is. But you know what you're referring to is a government program. Department of Treasury has very recently invested in the last few weeks about $2 billion in 85 credit unions that were CDFI or minority designated institutions, CDFI's Community Development Financial Institution. So those credit unions are going to be very well capitalized. They got a great opportunity with that program. The investments are subordinated debt that's been issued to the Department of Treasury. The terms are just really fantastic for those institutions. Often the term is 30 years. It was between 15 and 30 at the election of the institution. All of our clients elected 30. Of course, I'd imagine practically all of the participants did. So generational capital, the interest rate is 0% for the first two years. And for the remainder of the term is up to 2%. If certain benchmarks are achieved with respect to growth in lending to minority borrowers, other target populations, low to moderate income borrowers, that interest rate can be reduced considerably, even down to half a percent. Fantastic opportunity for those credit unions. And we have some clients that that participated. As you said, it's generational. Within that generation, it may be a one-time opportunity. It's it's by far the most robust offering in my 30-some years in credit unions that I saw Treasury offer up. And before anybody listening gets too excited, this program, the ship has sailed, and it's not something where somebody could apply right now. But as you said, it's a great opportunity for those credit unions. There's probably some who are eligible and now maybe wish that they had, particularly where rates have gone in the world and in the economy that we're having uh, right now. And one other thing I think maybe you can comment to, it's my understanding that perhaps it was good to get all these packages in to NCUA. And while Treasury approved it, NCUA also as insurer or regulator or both had to approve the issuance of this opportunity, which kind of goes to what you were saying about the volume taking off and it becoming subordinated debt, becoming more of a tool in the toolbox that more credit unions are going to use because so many took advantage of it under ESIP, some of which hadn't done subordinated debt previously. NCUA is getting more used to seeing packages, getting more used to seeing big packages, which is a good thing. It's kind of like paving the road for where the future might go as far as the volume in this industry. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's right. It's certainly going to you know drive the volumes of outstanding subordinated debt, obviously increase it more than double it from over 1 billion to going to be well over three next call report. It's definitely going to change from the competitive dynamics in the marketplace because you're going to have credit unions that are very well capitalized by virtue of this public capital. And we've certainly seen peers in those markets look at their own capital ratios, especially as it relates to merger and acquisition strategies and have to think about you know how they're capitalized relative to peers that are out there competing for loans, competing for inorganic growth opportunities through combinations with 
with other firms. But it's also the case, I think, that looking at this market, we're going to have to, if we want to analyze it accurately, we have to bifurcate it. We have to understand that the, the public capital is very different than the private capital market. The regulatory process was very different, as you and I discussed during it quite a bit. Those applicants and participants in the government program tended to be able to be approved for much larger amounts than we typically see in the private capital market. It definitely exercised the NCUA in approvals, in approving larger amounts and maybe normalizing larger amounts to some extent. But after all, it was generational capital. It was very cheap and it was you know, essentially a government federal government stimulus program. So there really wasn't as much impetus to scrutinize those packages to a large degree. Although, you know, we did work with some clients, you know, that needed some help with the process because they were running into some pitfalls, but we were able to work through it with them. And I don't know anyone that was not able to get through the process successfully. You know, some of them had maybe a little more of a frustrating experience than others, but in general, very high rate of success in the public program. Private market is still a little different. It's a different exercise, uh, definitely not one to take lightly. It's an exercise that's gotten a lot better. You know, one of the things that has occurred during that growth period I described from the end of 2017 to now, where we've had such explosive growth, is we've had a very dynamic regulatory period as well, where the NCUA has really honed in on their policies with respect to this concept. Uh, First, I believe in 2019, they issued a 20-page memorandum outlining the standards by which they were going to review applications to issue subordinated debt. And then in 2020, proposed a new rule, which was adopted last year and is going into effect this year. So it's been a period of very dynamic regulatory change as well. The good thing is with those standards being codified, We've seen the process get more reliable across the industry. And you know, for our clients, uh, certainly we've had a tremendous amount of success through the process. But when we started 2017 looking at this market, it was the case that over half of plans were being denied. And as of last year, if we look at the data in 2021, two-thirds of the plans were being approved. So better. I still think a denial rate of a full third is it's pretty large. I'd like to see that improve. Fortunately, you know, among our clientele, it's a lot, a lot higher. But that just goes to show the amount of expertise it's kind of needed to navigate the process well. And I'd like to see across the industry those approval rates continue to climb. But we've certainly seen things going in the right direction. And that's really enabled the the growth that, that we're seeing and drawn more credit unions to to be intrigued with supplemental capital as a tool. You mentioned the the letter to credit unions. So that was a 1901 subject of the letter to credit unions capital planning. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. But as you point out, it wasn't really until that point in time that NCUA said, hey, when you put a package in, here's what you need to address. And as you mentioned, I think you said 20 pages. It's long for a typical letter to credit unions, and it does provide a lot of guidance. And, and some of those credit unions that get denied might not be looking closely at that letter to credit unions. And someone who thinks that that this 20-page letter can be responded to with a five or 10-page response to NCUA, that type of response probably gets rejected pretty quickly. I've seen some of your packages, and I know that when Olden Lane takes a look at that letter and takes a look at what the credit union needs to submit, that you take that fully into consideration. The credit union takes it fully into consideration because obviously it's their package. But it's any thoughts relative to you know, that process of actually submitting a package to NCUA? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a serious planning and analytical exercise. You have to have a purpose 
for the capital. And we should talk about the cost of the capital in the market right now. You know, generally the cost for issuing subordinated debt, and most issuers are issuing 10-year debt, is between 5 and 6%. And in current conditions, we're seeing the cost of capital move to the higher end of that range. Got it. That's been dynamic as well. And it's very sensitive to the liquidity at other depository institutions who are the primary investors in this market. So that at the end of 2021, say November, December, issuers were able to print at coupons, interest rates of less than four in some cases, between 375 and four and a quarter. Now, you know, we're looking at issuance between five and a half and six percent. Obviously, interest rates generally have changed across the boards, but spreads are widening out as well due to the liquidity at depository institutions. So you have to take into account the incremental cost of the capital versus the benefit of being able to operate with a stronger capital position. And right now, conditions are rather uncertain in a lot of respects. So a lot of clients uh, certainly see the benefit of additional supplemental capital. And we've had a period of pretty pronounced asset growth that was very dilutive to capital ratios across the industry. And so while uncertainty is increasing, credit unions in the industry by large is not as well capitalized as they were before the pandemic. And so that's generating a lot of interest in supplemental capital to continue to maintain a high level of engagement with members during this period while managing potential volatility and restoring the capital ratio to where it had been historically prior to the conditions that the pandemic brought on. The other use that's becoming quite popular is to support a M&A strategy. We're likely to see through these conditions more and more consolidation. I think we're certainly seeing that but mergers and acquisitions can be capital intensive, especially depending on the type of institution that's being acquired or merged with. And so subordinated debt can really help offset the capital dilution of an acute growth event like an M&A transaction. And of course, on M&As, mergers and acquisitions, that could be another credit union, that could be a bank. And I'm sure you have an opinion on whether or not if someone's listening and they're a low-income credit union, and they're thinking that they might want to consider sub-debt for the first time, and they may want to consider it as it relates to mergers and acquisitions. When's the best time to approach you and approach an NCUA relative to that before they have the merger partner or after they've identified the merger partner? What would your thoughts be on that? I would say before. It's a planning exercise. You don't just go to market for the capital. You have to plan and anticipate. And Frankly, it's always better to be ahead of it. You know, we can act fast, but when it comes to raising capital, it's always better to raise it when you can put it to use, but you don't have an immediate need. If you have an immediate need, you know, you don't have as much choice and flexibility. You can't wait out certain market conditions that won't be favorable or that aren't favorable. And you kind of, kind of get to take what you get. There's always an advantage in anything, really, but certainly in in something like this, a tool like this, in planning ahead, and especially when it comes to M&A, because what the type of planning that we do and the type of analysis that we do, the capital analysis, really, it's capital management analysis, really can help size and scope an M&A strategy. And that's been particularly important in this, in the new RBC regime, where we're finding that while those transactions have always been dilutive to the PCA net worth ratio, because of, you know, the impact of goodwill that results from some of those transactions, it's actually can be more dilutive and punishing to the RBC ratio. So 
part of what we do in terms of our subdebt work actually is also advising potential acquirers in terms of scoping an M&A strategy and determining what's the most prudent bite size, if you will, in terms of acquisition partners or merger partners and how much subordinated debt can be utilized to fill in the gaps. So, yeah, so if they come to you, they come to NCUA, they get a maximum amount, whatever that might be approved, that that can then work into the math on what makes sense as far as an acquisition partner, particularly as it relates to that goodwill aspect that can hit the books as well. Exactly, exactly. And then you always want to check as part of the exercise, as part of the analysis, what are the performance benchmarks as a credit union that you'll want to meet in order to replace a substantial portion of that subordinated debt with retained earnings over the life of the instrument. So that when the instrument begins to mature, you're able to replace it with retained earnings and you don't find your capital ratios kind of falling off a cliff. And that's part of the exercise as well. What type of performance do we have to target? And is that performance feasible? Is it something that's supported by the historical performance of the credit union? And is it something that is supported by the current business plans and the opportunities that management recognizes in their current markets or in new markets that they plan to grow into? Got it. Now, we're talking about sub-debt and the new rule on risk-based capital. And of course, some of our listeners may not be aware of this, but a complex credit union is defined by NCOA as a credit union over 500 million. And those credit unions can use subordinated debt as it relates to their risk-based capital ratio. So what are you seeing in trends relative to that being something that credit unions can pursue? Either what have you seen or what do you anticipate might be happening in the market relative to that over the you know next year or two? So we've seen some interest from complex credit unions that are not low income, but none of it has been acted upon. We did have one client initiate the process as a complex non-low income credit union, uh, but we were able to work with them to get the low income designation during the process. That's right. So we've not you know, worked with any credit unions that weren't low income to submit applications. And the reason being is that there's sort of a tension, right, to Adding subdebt to the balance sheet, you're going to extend your liabilities and grow your balance sheet through the issuance of subdebt. Now, that growth also counts as capital, so it's supportive of the balance sheet in general. But if it's not counting towards your PCA net worth, it's actually a dilutive event, right? So you're getting a boost on the RBC ratio, but by doing so, you know, not, you're actually in some respects diluting your net worth ratio. So that tension, you know, can make it difficult for a, non-low-income complex credit union to pull the trigger on the opportunity, which is unfortunate because if you step back and you think about a non-low-income credit union that's complex and a low-income credit union, and you equivocate all the variables so that it's the same credit union, just one has a low-income designation, the other doesn't, and you add sub-debt, from the standpoint of the risk on the balance sheet, the exposure of the NCUA insurance fund, it's the same. It's the exact same credit union. But unfortunately, the PCA net worth is controlled by statute and the board does not have the ability to change that policy, take an act of Congress. So we do have this kind of unfortunate position where I think the policy that the board has articulated can't really fully be implemented. Now, it's interesting if examiner discretion can smooth that out, but since we haven't seen that and we can't guide clients at this point to expect it, it is a tough decision. 
for non-low-income complex sure. credit unions at this point. So we have interest. We talk to non-low-income credit unions about it, and we're happy to help them through some of the analysis, which we often do as a courtesy, because these projects are such that I think all parties involved need to understand that it makes sense for the credit union. Right, right. And so we do do a fair amount of analysis up front as a courtesy. But I think until Congress can act on that statute, um, we won't see non-low-income credit unions really contributing tremendously to the growth rate. But what we are seeing is continued interest in the low-income designation and the availability of the exemptive relief that comes with it, including that related to sub-debt and the ability to count the sub-debt towards the, both capital ratios. And, and like you said, the one that you had was able to get that designation. And when they start discussing being able to use it for risk-based capital, they understand the value of being low income, and then they understand the value of seeing how close to the edge they may be as far as qualifying. There are levers and things that you can pull that will help you get that low income designation. And it sounds like that one client was able to prove it or if you will, prove that they hit that, but it kind of opens their eyes when they realize, hey, I'd rather count this in my net worth ratio. How do I get this low income designation? And there's credit unions that then do pursue that. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we're starting to see, you know, desire for a low income designation, you know, influence business plans, influence growth plans, field of membership, charter expansions, as well as M&A activity. It's definitely a factor. It's a designation that's being sought after more and more, and we're seeing it influence how credit unions strategize their future if they don't have it, the desire to get it. Got it. So if they pick up a merger, that picking up those members can help prove that they're, or can can in and of itself make them low-income designated credit union if they look at the data. Yeah, exactly. And we're working with some clients to do just that, to try to help them identify targets that may be contributory to the low-income membership. Interesting. Okay. uh, And allow them to avail themselves of that designation. Very good. Any other thinking about the new subordinated debt rule? Any other thoughts relative to how that may have changed, you know, what credit unions have to do that's worth chatting about? Sure. So there's been some some pretty significant changes. A lot of the changes have created a little more equivalence with the bank sub-debt market, which I think is is positive. But of course, like anything that is permissive often, it also comes with a little more process and burden in terms of the process that credit unions have to follow. And that includes the way the offering is conducted. There's now more of a documentation requirement that needs to be satisfied with the the help and consultation of counsel. So credit unions have to prepare an offering document. Now, banks don't tend to do that. These are institutional markets. Primary investors are going to be other depository institutions for larger credit unions, a little wider universe of investors that will include institutional money managers and insurance companies. All institutional market, the same market that Banks tend to tap probably a little more credit union participation. Well, a lot more credit union participation among credit union issued subordinated debt, but otherwise a similar investor pool. It's a very institutional investor pool and one that for bank issuance tends to be done based on document diligence, almost like an underwriting through a data room with the only real offering documentation the issuer produces is a term sheet and investor presentation. That's kind of like a slide deck. You know, credit unions have to do a little, be a little more formal with their documentation, actually prepare something akin to a prospectus that the NCOA has articulated pretty detailed way in its regulations. That's added some cost to the process. 
And that cost can be anywhere right now, if we're seeing it anywhere from thirty to $50,000. So something to think about as well, something that's created some difficulty for small issuance. I mean, small right. credit unions that issue a few million dollars, less than $5 million can be tough. We're working uh, with one client of that sort now, and I think we found a law firm that can accommodate them, but there's a little bit of an exercise there to try to manage an offering of that size in such a way that the cost of the offering themselves don't make the prospect uneconomical. That can be challenging for small credit unions, absolutely. I don't believe it. Well, I don't believe it was NCUA's intent to have a higher requirement for credit unions than are out there in banks. I think this might have fallen into the unintended consequences where they were trying to create equilibrium and have it treated similar. I also am not certain that NCUA fully yet understands the ramifications and the cost of that. But as more and more small credit unions try and get it and their trade associations or whomever communicate that to NCUA, you know, regulations are pendulum, I guess is what I'm saying. And it may be at some juncture, they move the documentation level you know, to 25, maybe they'll dial that back to 20 at some juncture to maybe create some equilibrium so that those costs might be able to go down for credit unions. We can hope for that. Yeah, I mean, that's what we had advocated, that they consider an exemption for smaller credit unions. You know, they didn't. And I know others were out there pushing for that hard as well in the industry, but uh, they didn't take us up on that. So it is having an impact on small issuance without question, at least in our experience. Interesting. The other thing that I think is noteworthy and definitely not my favorite aspect of the new rule is that uh, credit unions now have to decide which side of the market they want to participate on, either as an investor purchasing a sub-debt issued by other credit unions or as an issuing sub-debt to investors, which are likely to include other credit unions based on the dynamics in this market and the composition of the investor pool. So you can't do both anymore. And that's something different than the bank space where banks have been able to participate on both sides of the market. And so that's something to keep an eye on. It's definitely an important decision. And we're seeing a fair amount of credit unions kind of in between on the sidelines, like the asset, have excess capital, could be participants as an investor, but are worried that things might change and then they would have a difficult time issuing. You could always liquidate the asset, but it is the case that these assets, these notes, these subordinated notes don't have a very liquid trading market. So it's it's an exercise to liquidate them. We've transferred the paper a few times in the past, but uh, you have to get a marketing agent like us and go out and find a buyer by appointment, basically. It's not a, a, a liquid trading market. So that's a factor that is causing some credit unions that would otherwise be participating in the market to not participate in either respect, which I think is not the most efficient allocation of either liquidity or capital across the industry. And right now, where we're seeing liquidity dry up really across the market at all institutions, particularly depository institutions, I think that's going to be a factor that's for the time being, driving up the cost of capital. It's not the most primary factor. Obviously, there's some pretty large macro conditions that are influencing the state of liquidity at depository institutions and other investors. But for the time being, I think we are seeing you know, the cost of capital being driven up by liquidity considerations. And part of that is credit unions that could be contributing liquidity to the market, but are hesitant to because of the new rules. Interesting. Yeah, that uh, I could see why that how that would play a role in that for sure because there's less it's, it's just like having you know less people qualify for a mortgage loan that means less people can consider buying my house when I list it so if less credit unions can participate you're impacting the market which drives the cost up yeah yeah it's a supply and demand dynamic 
and you know you can just think of the the market as primarily depository institutions so it's very sensitive to the liquidity at other depository institutions sure. and then for those credit unions that are larger say one and a half billion or above there is an opportunity to go reach out to a wider universe of institutional investors that includes institutional money managers and insurance companies as i mentioned uh, insurance companies in particular will require some more packaging on their deals. And that is primarily what I'm referring to as a, it is a credit rating. And so they have investment guidelines, often the money managers do as well, but in particular, because the investment guidelines of insurance companies also contribute to their regulatory capital requirements, there's often a desire and a need to have the paper rated to reach those investors and get good yeah. responses from them. There's a cost to doing that that can be over $100,000, but that packaging can really expand the universe of eligible investors. And so that's a consideration when we have a client that's been through the application process and is going to market, you know, how much packaging do we want to invest in and what's that going to mean for the offering in terms of the cost of the capital and the, the speed of execution. It's a lot like an onion. You know, there's lots of layers to does secondary capital make sense, what it might cost, how you get a package through NCOA and or your state regulator. And I can tell just as we're talking through this that, hey, that you, that there's things that Olden Lane has seen because of this, which makes, you know, considering it, giving you guys a call and saying, hey, we're contemplating it and just having that dialogue with you, they can start to understand what makes sense and what might not make sense for them. Exactly. And another thing that I think is important to mention is that once you go through the application process and get approved, you have the authority to issue the approved amount for up to two years before it expires. So you're not obligated to immediately rush out and go to market. A lot of clients do tend to go to market promptly after the approval, just because that, that was their business plan and conditions were conducive to that. But if you find either conditions changing such that your business plans are slowing down or conditions changing such that the market is not conducive to the issuance or the cost of capital you're seeking, uh, you can wait. You can wait for conditions to change. You do have that flexibility for up to a period of two years. So, you know, the application doesn't necessarily admit you to the issuance. Uh, you do have flexibility to exercise your business judgment and you'll want to use it. And so we often tend to, to encourage clients to think of the ap application process as optionality. If you see the opportunity to make good use of supplemental capital, give the process, the application process, serious consideration, but understand that just because you get approved doesn't mean you have to act. If things change, things do change. Marketplace is very dynamic right now in all sorts of respects for conditions to get more conducive and then act on your original plans. Have you seen anybody wait and then or, you know, issue half and then issue wait a year and issue the other half or cost wise? Yeah. I'm sure it's more expensive to do it half and half. We've seen all flavors in terms of waiting or issuing part. But to be honest, most clients either wait or they issue the full amount. Not so typical to issue something partial, although you can, you have the flexibility to do that. But we've certainly had clients wait. We've had clients not act on the authority at all. And we've had clients you know, wait some time, you know, over a year for conditions to materialize, especially if it was sub debt that was in support of a M&A strategy. You know, those transactions can take time to develop. Sure. Sometimes negotiations with a target fall through. Sometimes you just don't find the right target. And so there's certainly a fair number of clients that tend to wait. We do encourage clients when you request a certain amount, request amount that you're unequivocally going to ask for. You know, the NCUA does have 
discretion to request lesser amounts, but they like to see the entire amount analyzed, use of the entire amount that's being requested. And I think in your dialogues with the NCUA, you don't want to be equivocal about your request. If you're asking for a certain amount, ask for it and have be able to explain how you would utilize the full amount. I think that's how examiners want credit unions to approach them rather than have a number where there actually isn't a use or purpose for a portion of it. That can be awkward, I think, to, to defend, to analyze, to express, um, and can generate some skepticism with respect to that residual amount that in your honest heart, you don't really see at this point in time a use or purpose for. So there's a little bit of a dance. While you do have the authority for up to two years, and you can certainly wait, and you should wait and use your business judgment to make sure the time's right for something like this, not something we're advising at this point in time to go through the process just to shelve a large amount of potential supplemental capital, because the dialogue and the presentations you have to make can get awkward if you're asking for an amount you can't unequivocally ask for explain and relate to a business purpose. I agree with that 100%. I couldn't agree with that more. And you reminded me of something my dad used to say. My dad was a hunter and he used to say, when you're hunting, you need to aim high and allow for windage, right? And you do that in sub debt. NCA wants to know that you're asking for what you need and then you're going to have to prove how you're going to utilize it and how you're going to pay for it and why it makes sense incrementally and all that. So don't aim high and allow for windage, ask for what makes sense and, and plan to use it at some juncture. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yep. So Dan, this has been great. If there was a question I should have asked you and haven't, what would that be? And any last thoughts here before we wrap up? There's one thing to really understand so that, that I think is fundamental and we didn't touch on. It's probably my fault for not bringing it up sooner. But I just want to explain how the debt actually counts towards your capital. I did mention that credit unions tend to issue 10-year debt instruments, coordinated debt instruments. That debt, when you issue it, counts dollar for dollar towards your capital ratios. If you're low income, both your PCA net worth and your RBC ratio, if you're not low income, it only counts to your RBC ratio, but on a dollar for dollar basis when you issue it. As you get to within five years to maturity, the debt is discounted for purposes of your regulatory capital, 20% per year. So that in year six, if you have $100 of subordinated debt outstanding, you would only count $80 towards your capital ratios and supplemental capital. And the next year only counts $60. So during that discounting period, the instruments that our clients are issuing, and I think it's rather standard in the market at this point, is to have a call right so that the credit union can prepay debt during that discounting period. Because I think it is the case that credit unions are not going to want to leave that debt outstanding if a substantial portion of it is not counting towards capital. So you would do sort of a capital management exercise in that period after five years, determine how much of the debt is currently excess capital and not really being put to good use. And if there's any that you would classify in that regard, probably pay it off. And then to renew the subordinated debt for the purposes of the capital treatment, what I'm expecting and what we often see in the bank market is for credit unions to apply to issue new debt and then extinguish the old to renew the capital treatment. So it is a sub-debt strategy is one that you will review every five years even while the debt is a 10-year instrument, we do analyze in the application the debt being held outstanding till maturity. But I think from a practical standpoint, you'll have the ability prepay. I should note that those prepayments are subject to approval of your examiners as well. So you can't exercise a call right until your examiners permit it. 
but it's likely to be an exercise that probably involves some new issuance of subordinated debt, which has an application process as well. So it's going to be a capital management exercise that will be done in coordination with your examiners, probably on an every five-year basis. Got it. I'm glad you brought that up and, and added that here. Well, so this has been great, Dan. If someone listens and they wanted to talk to you or they wanted to talk to somebody at Olden Lane, what's the best way for them to reach you? So you can email me at dprezioso at oldenlane.com. Uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Uh, we're very active on LinkedIn. You can follow our, our LinkedIn page as well as our website. We have an info at Olden Lane, which you can email and that will reach all the principals of the company. And we love to talk to credit unions about these issues and others. And we do an awful lot on courtesy just to figure out with a client whether or not this even makes sense. It's not a project we want to work on with clients for whom it doesn't make sense. Sure. And that often requires uh, working with the client through a little analysis up front. And uh, we've got a lot of progressive other ideas. Credit union space, we're entirely dedicated to credit unions. And all of our products and services are designed specifically for credit unions. And we obviously stay on top of the industry and the markets related to credit unions. So I think we're a good group to talk to and we love to chat with credit unions. So anyone that's interested in these topics, Subdebt, M&A, reach out and we'd be happy to chat. Okay, that's great. And maybe we'll do another podcast down the road sometime on some of those other services that you offer now or, or may offer in the road, down the road. And Dan, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been informative and I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you having me. I'd love to come back. All right. Sounds good. And to the listeners, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll listen again. And this is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 